the Stocking Strangler is a chapter in Columbus history that's gotten a lot of attention. We're now going to talk to the man who prosecuted it and the man who's told his story. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Chuck Williams Show. We'll get right to it. We got two guests today, and we're going to talk about the most horrific 10, 12 month period in the history of Columbus, Georgia. We're going to talk about the Stocking Stranglers with two subject matter experts. First, we got Judge Bill Smith. Judge Smith was a district attorney that prosecuted Carlton Gary that later led to his elect his execution. And then we got William Rawlins. He is the author out of Sanderson, Sandersville, Georgia, who told Judge Smith's story. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, I'll start with you, Mr. Rawlins. Um, you have written a book that many people I've known over the years, including myself, would have loved to have written. How did you get Judge Smith's story and get this book? Well, this story centers around two uh, things. One is, of course, the killer and the horrific series of crimes that he committed. And the other major part of the story was bringing this killer to justice and his his interaction with the judicial system, which is, of course, the story of Judge Bill Smith, who was the prosecutor at that time. It's a fascinating tale, one of these ones that as a writer you look for. It's not simply a one, two, three, four. It has twists and turns and strange things. It's just absolutely a, an interesting thing. And also it's quite complicated, too. It's a story that's Incredibly spans, complicated. Incredibly complicated, correct. And the, uh, if you really look at the entire picture, the story spans nearly half a century. So uh, there was a, a lot of horrible things that happened here in the late 1970s in Columbus. The, uh, the trial was in the 1980s, and the appeals uh, lasted 32 years beyond the trial. The execution was in 2018. That's correct. In March 2018, 32 years after uh, the uh, Carlton Gary's conviction, he was executed by the state of Georgia. Judge Smith, you knew this story better than anyone because you lived it. You lived the you lived the, the time the killings were happening, and then six years later when Carlton Gary was arrested and tried, you were the guy who tried him. You were the man that sat there across the table or in the table next to him. Why have you waited till na- until now to tell your side of this story? Well, first of all, it's not really a book about me. Uh, it's a book about the... Columbus, it's a book about the case and what have you. I just happened to draw the short straw and be the guy in the position that uh, um, had to try the case. And uh, my obligation as, as district attorney, and I did the best that I, that I could. But to more specifically answer your question, um, I, because I was prohibited from telling it uh, for a long period of time, uh, for the couple of years after the the uh, uh, trial, I, I did uh, make some speeches about it and tell publicly, uh, tell people, uh, uh, clubs and groups and what have you about it. But when I became a judge, uh, I got locked down by the judicial canons of ethics. I say locked down, that, that may be the, 
uh, a harsh term, but uh, I was prohibited. And even though I was a senior judge after I retired, that uh, still continued. Uh, I was uh, bound by the judicial canons of ethics, and so until the conclusion of the case, the execution, if you will, I was prohibited from uh, from uh, speaking publicly about the, the case and the story. Mr. Rollins, how did this story find you? You've written one true crime story. You've written 12 books. You, you publish a lot out of Mercer Press. How does this story find you? Well, uh, two things. One is that I have had recently written a book about another horrific South Georgia murder, uh, which had come out uh, a couple of years earlier. Uh, two is I'm a Southern writer. I think that's the best way to describe me. I've written both fiction and nonfiction as well as Southern history. This book is, in essence, a historical document, or at least I tried to make it uh, that. It's a story without uh, editorial commentary of a horrific period in Columbus and, in fact, the state's history. Uh, the short answer is my publisher asked me to uh, consider writing the book. I took one look at it and said, yes, I'll do it. Didn't take long on this one with your background, did it? Well, it, it should have taken long. This is a tremendously I mean, it didn't take long for you to oh, jump no, into no, it. I mean, this, is what, this is what people that do what you do for a living it, it, it dream took, about. It took me a very short period of time to say, yes, of course, I'd love to do this uh, story. But uh, the I should say that this is a very, very complicated uh, book. To, it was a very complicated book to write. I had to review between 15 and 20,000 pages of transcripts and other records. I had to interview dozens and dozens of people. There were uh, decades of uh, newspaper articles and so forth and so on. And then you had to put it in perspective and put it together in a cogent story that readers would appreciate and enjoy and follow despite its complexity. And make it accurate. All right. It had to be accurate because in the past there's been a lot of misinformation about this uh, saga and my my job as a uh, writer and as a docu documenter of history is to tell the story truthfully and straight without my opinion. Well, I have not had a chance to read it. it it's a hard book to get in Columbus right now, um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to go to Judge Smith, and I want him to paint a picture for me. Paint a picture of 1977-78. And Columbus, Georgia, and what happened? What was going on that led to these events? That were these events? Well, uh, anyone who lived through that uh, and was of age will never recall, will uh, never forget uh, what uh, what what happened. Everyone uh, has a story about uh, remembering the events, hearing about a particular victim. Um, it's uh, uh, the drones of the helicopters over your, your house, the police coming by at night, uh, shining uh, spotlights into your windows and casting uh, shadows, uh, being stopped while uh, walking your dog uh, uh, in, in the evenings. Uh, it was a time of Columbus, as you phrased it earlier, has never had anything like it. Uh, I guess we didn't know how to react, and um, to have a serial murderer 
uh, among us uh, in our midst, midst was uh, just unprecedented. Uh, we did have a serial killer. We had seven women. What was the what was the common denominator with between the victims? Well, the police certainly looked for the common denominator. Uh, the the common denominator was the the area of Columbus that they lived in. It was at that time called women. It's now more fashionably called Midtown, uh, I suppose. But uh, uh, generally, in a small uh, area within Winter, with one exception, um, the, the last victim, Ms. Kofa, was outside of this. And my theory on that is that it just became so uh, saturated with police um, that he had to move outside, and he did for uh, the last uh, victim. She was uh, at the intersection, more or less, of, one of uh, University Road and C. Mill Road. Uh, her home, but uh, the police looked for other common uh, denominators, and uh, rightfully so. This was a logical uh, way to uh, investigate the case, a common yard service, a common uh, a beauty shop, a common grocery store, uh, and they could, they could not find him. There yep. was no no other one other than that, but it was the right way to investigate the case. So it was elderly women, they were women, and the way I've heard it described before is if you took Dinglewood Pharmacy and drew about a mile circle around Dinglewood Pharmacy, you would pretty much cover the area that was impacted. Is that, that is that's that an accurate way to, uh, to to describe it? Um, all of the women were elderly. What were the age ranges? Uh, the youngest was. Uh, 59, the oldest was uh, 89, uh, Mrs. Florence Scheibel, um, and you talked about the brutality of it, which is an unnecessary part of the book. He just simply had to describe it as an example. Mrs. Scheibel, the 89-year-old, was uh, in addition to being raped and, and strangled to death. She was brutally beaten and her uh, neck was broken. I read uh, an interview you did in advance of this, Mr. Rawlings, where you said you were moved, not the right word, but you were incredibly impacted by what happened to Ms. Scheibel. Yes, uh, Ms. Scheibel was 10 days short of her 90th birthday. She was nearly deaf. She was nearly blind. She was on a walker. She was the most pitiful and defenseless of all the victims, and yet this person was brutally abused prior to her, her death. And, and uh, it's really a horrific thing. And you, you begin to say, what sort of person, what sort of animal would do this to, to, this, to this poor lady? And, you know, um, it's, it, 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 it does move you. And, uh, of course, I did a lot of research, which included looking at the police reports, and actually looking at the crime scene photos, which were absolutely horrific. So there's a lot that was just too horrible to even put in the book. But uh, you can't help but having having seen it, it certainly moves you. And some of the victims, a lot of the victims, were who's who list of Columbus, right, Judge? Yes, uh, they, they certainly were, and that was uh, part of a theory as to why he was attacking them or what have you, but uh, a number of them were 
middle class uh, folks, um, uh, school teachers, uh, a health department worker, um, and uh, but certainly you're right. Uh, a number of them were names that uh, one would find in in Columbus history and and very very prominent. So these crimes happened in late '77, early '78, and then they just all of a sudden stopped. Boom! Seven victims there after. Uh, Miss Cofer was the last one you said. After Miss Cofer's death, it just ended. I mean, but the investigation didn't, right? And that's exactly right. And of course, the people of Columbus uh, had no idea that Miss Cofer would be the last. Uh, they expected another one. After all, there'd been seven in a eight month and an eight month period. And uh, so, were they still living in fear? Yeah, they they were and. Those who were living here, some of the uh, I, what I now call uh, called elderly at that time. My, my definition of elderly has <laughs> has changed uh, uh, since uh, I was thirty four years old when Mine the crime too. was committed, and forty three when I prosecuted the uh, the case. But some of them moved out of town. Some of them moved in with other relatives. Or some of them moved in with each other. Thinking that would afford uh, uh, some some protection, but you had sons living with their moms just out of protection of that, right? I mean, well, and, and you also had moms living with their sons. Uh, for instance, uh, my mother was a widow at that time. We lived uh, in the Target area, um, and she came to live with us uh, and stayed for two years. Um, so, yes. Uh, Every precaution was taken, including the uh, sale of locks, burglar bars, guns uh, that you can uh, imagine to protect themselves. We did not have, and I would emphasize this, uh, the sophisticated burglar alarms that we have now. Uh, if they had, uh, everyone would in the area would have had one, or most everyone, I'm confident. When you ride through Overlook or ride through the Midtown area to neighborhoods with these houses, you can see remnants of that era now because you can see those burglar bars on those windows. I mean, that's one of the things that strikes me kind of having been here for a while is you ride through there and, you know, those burglar bars are a reminder of the terror and the horror, right? Well, that's uh, that's true, and I personally never ride by uh, one of the houses, whether it was a, a murder there or whether it was a, simply a burglary uh, there that uh, he committed without uh, recalling it. And I was born and raised and grew up uh, in the area, attended uh, the grade school and high school in the area, and uh, uh, so it, it was my... Uh, home base, and uh, it still still is, uh, always will be, but I never go by a house that I don't uh, recall exactly what happened there. I'm going to get to you in just a second, Mr. Ross, but I want to ask one question. I've sort of had this in my head since this podcast started before doing the prep work. You came out of Auburn University, and you became a member of the FBI. Then you came home went to work in the DA's office, and the DA's office of that era 
you know, you see a DA's office now with 29 attorneys. It was, what, three of y'all then, right? Well, actually, at one time, it was only one. Uh, I, I was the uh, second assistant uh, hired, uh, Hardy Pilots, who became the city, uh, the, the city attorney, was there. And Hardy left to go to the city attorney's office as an assistant, so I became the the chief assistant district attorney. The only problem was I was not only the chief assistant, I was the only assistant. <laughs> and uh, there were no other assistants to be the chief of. And Judge Wisnett was the DA, right? But, that, but, that's correct. But what I, the question I want to ask you is, you had FBI experience. You had come up through the ranks, what they were at the DA's office, and then later became a judge. But do you think there were things in your life growing up in that area going to the FBI, FBI Academy, the DA stuff, that when Carlton Gary was captured and the wheels of justice started to turn, that you were uniquely situated to be the man who represented our community? Well, I phrased it a few minutes ago that I, I drew the short straw. And I don't think that's right. I think that you're <laughs> underselling yourself. Well, you, you, could, uh, you could say that. Uh, the answer to you question is yes. Uh, everything that I had done uh, uh, prepared me for, the, for this moment. Uh, my 14 weeks in the FBI Academy, uh, studying uh, a week long on, on fingerprints, uh, uh, investigative uh, techniques, um, certainly assisted me in my, my service uh, as an agent. Uh, nothing could have been been better uh, for me. I didn't know that at the time. That wasn't the reason I was doing it. Um, for seven years, I served as an assistant uh, district attorney. I had tried, I'm sure, a half dozen or more uh, capital cases, that is, death penalty uh, cases. Uh, but I, I don't want to emphasize me or, or my story. I, I had tremendous uh, help and assistance. Oh, I mean, you can lay it off the names. I mean, you had on the police side, you had Ricky Bourne, Charlie Rowe, Mike Sellers. Um, you're, you're the, what was the, the attorney that assisted you through? Most uh, of it? Doug Pullen, uh, who, who was my chief assistant. And, uh, I pulled away from all the work that I could in the district attorney's office from the time of the arrest, uh, through the time of trial, uh, Doug, uh, pulled away from his regular work. We had three investigators. Who, who was the lead investigator? Uh, a guy named Al Miller, uh, who's uh, 96 years old and going strong, uh, driving. I visited with him, gave him a copy of the book uh, uh, last week. And uh, uh, in any event, he w we had three investigators. He pulled off of all the work that he was doing for those two years. And we had a total of, of five uh, assistants by this time. But um, the chief assistant and myself and Al pulled off. You've already mentioned the three detectives from the um, police department. They were kind enough to let me have a thought for a few months, and it ended up being uh, two years. Uh, so I, I had a tremendous amount of, uh, of assistance. Did you talk to Mr. Miller, uh, Mr. Rollins? Were you able to talk to I I, I don't believe I did, no. You did talk to Chief Warren. You did right, talk right, to right. a number of the, right. the police officers. You have written so, um, 
you're you call yourself a southern writer and i think that's a in in literary terms that's an art form um uh uh as a Southern writer, this is a Southern story. What prepared you to tell it? I don't know the exact answer to that question because writing, um, if you really try to make a go of it as a writer, someone who produces books and stories, you have to have a feel for the situation. If you grow up in the South with all the exigencies of, of our particular part of the country, our accents and our problems and our past and, and the our athletes, idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies, <laughs> let's use that word. That's a great <laughs> one. Uh, you sort of uh, focus on those. This, this book in particular um, uh, that I wrote, this account that I should say, uh, I'd in the first chapter of the book, I give a history of Columbus because there were several things in this story that became quite important. The issue of race was a major issue that, that permeates the entire story. And so during the, uh, during the uh, decades prior to this uh, situation, these, these killings, um, there were things that might make one believe that the person that was eventually accused might not get a fair trial, but that's not the case. He was afforded every opportunity uh, to defend himself and had excellent uh, defense attorneys. If you may allow me, I'd like to read the first sentence of your book. Sure. Um, this is a settlement on the frontier is how you started. And you're talking about that history of Columbus. The city of Columbus, Georgia is unique for many reasons, not the least among them being the fact that the land on which it was founded was acquired by treachery and paid for in blood. That's a pretty powerful sentence, and it describes this community and, and who it was taken from very well. Well, it, it, it does, but, it, but you have to remember it's a historical description. We all have a history on us, one way or the other, including this community. And, and I go on to explain this about the uh, interaction with Native Americans and, and other things that happen because, you know, events today don't exist in an isolated uh, uh, world. They are, they are the continuations of things that happened earlier. And the attitudes and the biases and the perceptions and misconceptions of things that happened in the past color our um, thinking currently. In all things, not on, not not this story, but everything we do. The past is important to a writer, but also to the story. And yeah, it's it's interesting. About ten years ago, I found myself in Halifax on a cruise, and got off the boat in Halifax, and it reminded me a little bit of Columbus, a bigger Columbus. But then you started hearing the tortured history of Halifax. That's where they brought the Titanic survivors when World War was put in place. It was the largest explosion in the harbor there, a dynamite explosion that killed over 2,500 people uh, on a British ship. I mean, you, you see this beautiful place, but there's also this tortured history. Did you feel you had a responsibility to talk about some of the history, the race, and some of the torture, the Civil War, some of the torture that is Columbus's history? I think that 
the interpretation of this series of horrific events does, did not occur in a vacuum. It occurred in a community, a living, breathing community with a long history. And so when something horrific occurs like this, people in, have, look at it in the context of what came before. Uh, there have been other accounts written of this story that somehow uh, harked back to things that happened 100, 150 years earlier, which I personally did not uh, support. I don't think it's fair to... You're talking about Mr. Rose's book. I am, but I don't think it's fair to, to visit the sins of the fathers upon their sons. And this is this uh, has been uh, part of the controversy about uh, Mr. Rose's book and other things. And so, in other words, this didn't occur in an isolated environment. It occurred in, in a context. And I tried to put the story in context, which uh, I think is important when you're a writer trying to document something, not trying to form an opinion, but rather document a horrific series of events, as I said. You did. I mean, I can't wait to read it. I just I can't wait to read it. Judge Smith wants to switch back to Back to you, sir. When was the first time you heard the name Carlton Gary? First time I heard the name, and it was after roughly 10,000 pages of, of uh, police reports on this case had already been done without his name ever being mentioned in them, was uh, from Chief Weatherington. He was chief of police at the time, later became mayor. and. Uh, he called me to uh, tell me that uh, the department had developed a suspect, and he felt that it was a good, a good suspect. Uh, now, there had been hundreds, if not thousands of them already before that. How long after? When, would, when did the three, four, five, six years? Uh, six years passed between the uh, last uh, murder, we've already mentioned uh, Mrs. Colfer, and uh, the uh, development of Gary as a suspect, um, and it was in um, one of the last days of April of um, um, 1984. Uh, he gave me the name. He told me very briefly uh, some of the evidence that had had developed uh, about him. I had never heard the name. The, the chief had never heard the name, as I say, because the name had never been mentioned in a police report bef before that. Where was he? Uh, he was back in Columbus. He had escaped from uh, the penitentiary in South Carolina at that time. There are a number of escapes in his past that uh, the book uh, sets out uh, very well. But uh, this time he was in a penitentiary, state penitentiary in Columbia, South Carolina. And for uh, numerous armed robbery charges, primarily in uh, Greenville, uh, South Carolina, but uh, the one he was arrested on was in a small town of Gaffney, uh, about 50 miles north of Greenville on Interstate uh, 85. And he'd been serving there since 1979, and he escaped. Uh, he returned to uh, Columbus and was back in the Columbus area when he was when it was uh, uh, when he was developed as as a suspect, he'd been back about three weeks, apparently, from the time of his escape till he returned here. Um, obviously, there was an intense effort to arrest him, which is again well well described in 
in the book, but uh, the chief had a dilemma, and he he discussed that with me. Uh, he said he's already a fugitive. He's already uh, an escapee. So he obviously would know that uh, he was being sought by law, law enforcement, although it was a relatively low pr- priority. To be sent back to South uh, Carolina. That's correct. Um, and we have now developed him as a, a certainly viable and uh, suspect in the, in the Strongman cases. Should we go public and tell the, uh, the people that a suspect in the uh, – we have a suspect in the uh, uh, Strangler cases and uh, drives Gary further underground. Or should we not go public and not tell them, have a better chance of arresting him, uh, but possibly have him not commit another murder during this time? Man, that's not a dilemma. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a moral dilemma. <laughs> well, it, it was a tough decision, and I, I don't take credit for what he did. It was the chief's decision, but we discussed it uh, at the time, and he made the decision uh, not to tell the public. He and never committed another, another and, crime. And another crime. Fortunately, he was arrested in, in about a week. Uh, after that, I, I say another crime. Uh, he was committing many crimes during this time. Other armed robberies. Uh, he was involved in drug dealing, even though he'd only been out for, for three weeks out of the penitentiary. But he, fortunately, he never committed another murder, and he was arrested uh, in Albany, Georgia, uh, through the work that our our department did uh, in the Holiday Inn in Albany, uh, May the third, I believe, of nineteen. 19- 84, about a week after I was informed by the chief of the circumstances. When did you become convinced as the prosecutor he wasn't a suspect, he was a killer? Well, um, you know, as I said, I got a brief description from uh, Chief Wetherington and uh, followed in the days uh, immediately after that um, with some of the uh, circumstances. we knew from the facts that he gave me that, that he was the, the, the strangler. Um, his fingerprint uh, had been identified uh, on, at the point of entry on a screen on, uh, uh, at the point of entry of the Woodruff uh, burglary and murder. This print had been lifted, if you know anything about latent uh, fingerprints, uh, from a screen that was removed from the window that the burglar entered. Uh, this print had been retained in the Columbus Police Department, and not only that, it had been circulated to law enforcement agencies throughout the state and throughout the region. And everyone was asked to compare uh, this print with any possible suspect or non-suspect alike and uh, notify the department, obviously, if, if you got a hit. At that time, there was no computer that you simply... No database. Uh, uh, sent uh, your, your print into, and you'd get back a name and serial number, date of birth, et cetera, of the individual. You have to ha- had to have a full set of the fingerprints of the suspect and then compare one by one that... Uh, um, print uh, of the suspect. 
And so uh, that's what they had been doing. For the first year or so after the last murder, every individual who came through the Columbus Police Department, Trent was compared. Uh, obviously, they never got, never got a hit. Uh, but uh, they did acquire the, the full set of prints of Gary from the penitentiary in South Carolina where he had been. And, and that's why they stopped, by the way. Uh, the murder stopped. He, he was arrested on an armed robbery in, in Gaffney, went to the penitentiary in South Carolina. Well, that's why ours stopped a few months after the uh, the last, less than a year. If that hadn't happened, do you think you would have continued? Uh, I, Mr. Rollins is striking, <laughs> shaking his head I, over here. I, I'm not an expert on serial murders, but uh, I, I'll let you I'll let you answer that. Uh, the, there's no no way of knowing, but but you know it's it's in, in writing about this series of events, it's hard not to get a real feel and to almost. Uh, have the impression that you know this person. Yes, I think I think the problem the problems uh, would have continued, including the murders. This man was a armed robber. He was a rapist. He was uh, a vicious individual, a vicious sociopath, but a very intelligent vicious. Sociopath. Incredible charisma. Oh yes, he was um, uh, narcissistic to say the least, uh, uh, and was a con man. Uh, I think people that were convinced of his innocence. He, he, during, during the entire episode, he never, ever admitted personally that he was culpable for these particular murders. And he was so convincing that he would look you straight in the eye and say, of course I didn't do that. You know, I could, I would sit here and tell you that I did, that I wouldn't lie to you. And he built quite an army of defenders. He built quite an army of defenders. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we're all welcome to our opinion, but in the end, we want justice to be served based not on opinion, not on not on emotion, but rather on hard evidence. And uh, uh, Judge Smith and the other prosecutorial team, and in fact, the entire justice system, looked at this in great detail. And despite his detractors, uh, despite the attract detractors of the eventual verdict, I believe that uh, it was correct, and, and I believe that uh, it was uh, certainly confirmed by the fact that it went uh, through the entire judicial system up to the U.S. Supreme Court on four separate occasions. But he wasn't convicted for all seven. He was only convicted for three of the murders, right? Why is that, Judge? Uh, that's correct. Um well, that's you, one of the things his people talk about. Right. That's uh, certainly a legitimate uh, question. Um, I'd like to go back to the uh, previous question that you asked, though, and add that when his fingerprint was found to match uh, the uh, uh, entry into the Woodruff uh, home, his fingerprint also was found to match latent fingerprints found in three of the other of victims' homes. Uh, so his personal fingerprint was found in four of the seven um, murders, uh, victims' homes. What were the four? Um, they were um, Woodruff, obviously. Woodruff, uh, Thurman, um, the um, Scheibel, and um, Jackson. Okay. Um, but which leads me. To answer your your question that you that you just asked, why three? Why not seven? Well, you may recall that the uh, another horrendous uh, 
case was on the news at that time. That was the, the Atlanta uh, child murders. Yep. I think he was only convicted of one or two, even though was, uh, he apparently did many more than that. And um, we picked, I picked the three strongest cases we had and uh, prosecuted him on, on those, uh, Scheibel, Thurman, and Woodruff. There we had uh, his fingerprint in each of the uh, homes, and we had his admission or confession that he participated in those cases. With the, the other four, we either had only his print or we had his admission. But in these three, we, we, had, we had both. And I, I, I picked those three. I was told to, taught to lead with strength. Uh, we did. We were able to bring in, though, under our law, they call similar acts, and I don't want to get tangled in legalese. You couldn't bring them in today. The law's changed, right? Yeah, no, no, we could. Okay. Uh, okay. We, we, we could, and we brought in all four. The jury heard of all seven of the murders, including the four he was not charged with. We brought in uh, a murder that he was initially charged with and pled to a lesser offense. In Albany, New York, when he was 19, he committed when he was 19 years old. We brought in a, a rape and uh, mur um, attempted murder by strangulation of uh, a lady in Syracuse, New York, that he'd done prior to this. That uh, he always blamed someone else for for the crime. So and he we, fits the very definition of serial. Oh, oh yes, and also there were other. Uh, burglaries and uh, uh, attempted murders uh, here in Columbus that we were able to bring in under this uh, theory of evidence that's well recognized. It's not unique to this case. I did the same thing in the Wayne Williams case, child murders case in, uh, in uh, uh, Atlanta. When... Uh, okay, yeah. Let me, let me you don't have to ask me. I come on right on <laughs> well, in. You're well, an expert too, Mr. Roberts. No, no, I'm, I'm scarcely an expert on anything. But uh, <laughs> the, the the legal concept here is 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 a difficult one, and to the average reader, myself included, probably who's not an attorney, the uh, the, the details of the fact that you can bring in similar acts were uh, explained in some with some care in the book so the reader can understand why uh, evidence from other cases with which he was not charged were, were allowed at trial. And this is... Uh, and that's part of making sure this document stands a historical test, right? It is, it is, but it's also part of, part of allowing the reader to understand the story. This is a horribly complex story, as I said, and you want the reader to, to go through it very much like the, uh, 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 like the uh, judiciary and the police went through it. So this is a sequentially written story that addresses, that tries to address and explain difficult concepts. You've used the terms complex and complicated a couple of times this morning or today. When you started looking at it as a writer, as somebody who was charged with telling the story, who didn't live it, what was the most complicated part of the story to you? There were seven murders, each of which was complicated, complex, 
But after a while, they begin to display a pattern, which was part of the uh, part of the evidence that was presented at trial. And then, then also there were complications, and I say bizarre complications of bizarre events. For example, there was a second serial killer operating in Columbus during the same period of time, uh, the so-called forces of evil serial killer. That's was that down on Fort Benning or down? I'm right. trying to I'm, South, right, South Columbus. So, one of the victims was found on Fort Benning, okay. but so. but 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 this this person who's uh, William Henry Hans was eventually convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, this person was trying to convince the Columbus police that he was in fact uh, in fact doing his murders in retribution for the police not solving the uh, the uh, strangler murders. It's 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 horribly bizarre. Uh, there were other things. There were the Ku Klux Klan got into the picture at one time, uh, wanting to. Uh, it was it was rumored or actually established early that the killer was an African was African American, and therefore the Klan stepped up, which was horrific, uh, opposed by most rational individuals. But they have their rights. You know, when you, I came into this. I, I was in your fall. I remember it as a you know, as a kid or a high school kid back at the time. But when you look at this now, when when I came into the story, Carlton Carey was almost a rock star defendant or a rock star person in the justice system. I mean, you would go to cover, and I only covered two or three hearings, but you would have these people that were there just to be near Carlton Carey. I always found that incredible. Incredibly bizarre, Judge. I mean, what, what does that speak to what Mr. Rollins was talking about a few minutes ago? Well, I suppose so. Uh, it, but it's not unusual, from what I understand, about uh, high-profile killers and serial killers to attract this uh, uh, following. Uh, in, in the book, you'll find that he married a uh, a lady uh, from. I'm not sure where she was from actually, but uh, uh, married her while he was on death row. And she would support him. She was there giving interviews to the press. Of course, she'd not even known him during the time of the, uh, uh, of the crime. So it's, he, he corresponded with people in England, um, corresponded with people right here in Columbus, you, you'll find in the book. Uh, it's, oh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly not unprecedented but for them to develop a group of followers and true believers. You also had Ted Bundy operating about this time in Florida, Tallahassee, and that area. So, I mean, this area was ripe with serial killers, and I know that I don't say that lightly. I mean, they were they were all over the place: Atlanta, Tallahassee, Columbus. Why is that? That's correct, and uh, um, Williams done a good job of describing other books on this subject and you know, on this uh, case, and you you referred to them. Uh, one of them is that Ted Bundy uh, committed at least a part of these uh, of these uh, murders. Uh, uh, totally uh, unrealistic. A four hundred page uh, book, self published book, by a guy who's nationally known not as an author, but as a national comedian uh, who's from Columbus, called Happy New Year, Ted. 
try and convince people that not these three murders, but the murders after New Year, after January 1st of 78, were committed by uh, Ted Bundy. So uh, it's, it's attracted a lot of theorists, uh, a lot of writers uh, in the past, but I am so glad to have the truth stole, told in just uh, um, following the facts, uh, citing uh, sources without, without opinions. I'm going to ask the mother of all hypothetical questions, and I'd like for both of y'all to weigh in. This obviously happened in the late 70s. Could you imagine Columbus today with a stocking stringer on the loose with social media and with everything that is out there? I mean, there was no social media. There was the rumor mill. The rumor mill was running rich with with all of the stuff during the stocking strangers, but you didn't have the mass communication that you do today. What would it be like if this were happening now? I'll start with you, Judge. I, I can only imagine. Uh, <laughs> it, but I would also add that during the trial, the, the preparation for trial, the two years between arrest and, and uh, the, the actual trial, um, we had and the trial itself in 1986, we had no social media then. I am so grateful uh, that that's the case. Now, it was it was covered by uh, traditional uh, media. Uh, the television stations uh, filmed every moment of the trial. Of course, only excerpts uh, uh, ran, but uh, they had one common uh, camera uh, in there, and... Uh, uh, it was, so it was thoroughly covered. We had, I believe, two newspapers at that time, the Ledger and the Inquirer, and they they did a very good job of covering uh, the case also. But I personally am grateful that during the trial time we had no no social media. Now, I, I would emphasize this, and it's something you beware, be aware of, that there was a change of venue. And uh, the jury was selected from another county, uh, follow, uh, Judge Fowler, who presided in the trial and did a very good job under some very challenging and difficult circumstances, uh, again, that are described in the book, uh, when he granted the change of venue, granted Spalding County. But this was the first time. That's in, Griffin, right? Uh, Griffin is the county seat, correct. And uh, it was the first time under some new Superior Court rules that the jury could be brought back to the county where the uh, case uh, originated or where venue originally uh, was uh, lied. And uh, so these 12 jurors and four alternates were uh, selected after a two-week jury selection process in, uh, in Griffin. They were put on a bus, brought to Columbus, put in what was... At that time, the Hilton Hotel uh, sequestered from uh, uh, news, uh, te- television, newspapers. They uh, had their own floor, uh, didn't they? They, they did. Um, and uh, uh, so that was the first time that a jury was allowed to be brought back to, uh, to the county. If we'd had to try this in Griffin, uh, it would have uh, over 100 witnesses were called, and to transport them to Griffin, so, uh, many of them, 
family members of the uh, deceased uh, who had to identify various things uh, and, and testify uh, were older. Uh, uh, we had two witnesses testify from wheelchairs and one from a hospital bed uh, brought in. Did you have any who had deceased that you had to use their uh, their video testimony? Uh, uh, no, uh, we, we didn't do that, fortunately. Uh, so, uh, Colonel Scheibel, the son of Mrs. Scheibel, who um, uh, um, died between the, he discovered his mother's body, and it, he passed away uh, between the time of the crime and the time of the arrest. Uh, but uh, uh, his son was able to testify and and uh, fill in that gap, fortunately. But but it's amazing, really, that we had that many that we were able to uh, who survived during that time. Let me ask you this: When in 1986, when that jury convicted him and then ultimately sentenced Carlton Gary to death, that was not the end of the story. In many ways, <laughs> it was just the beginning of the story. I'll let Mr. Rollins start with that. It, the, as a storyteller, there's a natural break there from everything to the conviction, but then there's a whole other story after the conviction. There was, and, and when I first... <clears throat> Excuse me. When I first looked at this story, I thought that this would be a fairly short section. The book, the book, uh, just in terms of uh, writing, is divided into three sections. One was the part that describes the killing. The second part describes uh, the time between Gary's arrest and his conviction. And the third part, which I, I um, <clears throat> called thirty-two years, is the time between Gary's conviction and his eventual execution. In my initial thoughts, oh, this will be perhaps a chapter or two. As it turned out, it's a fairly long section of the book, and there were lots of things that happened. The, the defense attorneys, which were a very good and hardworking group, their job was to uh, get this man proved innocent if possible. But they were facing overwhelming circumstantial as well as physical evidence that convicted him. They hoped over a period of time by attacking this that they could at least get a new trial because with, as time went forward, the uh, witnesses uh, died, people's interest in the case had waned. And so, you know, if, you're, if it's 2010, for example, and you're talking about a, a murder, a series of murders that happened, gosh, in the 1970s, I mean, the people on the jury perhaps were not even born at the time. Um, there was lots that happened. Um, there was things that went back and forth, but eventually all of this was upheld and he was executed. You know, the defense, <clears throat> you were judged by the time a lot of this happened, but, you know, you hear the term long game. Carlton Gary's defense was playing a long game, weren't they? Absolutely, he was, without a doubt. I, I, I think uh, what they were doing, the obligation, if you look at it that way, was to keep him alive. Uh, every day that he was alive after the death sentence was a victory for the defense. And it lasted for 32 years. Frankly, there was a time that I uh, was concerned that I might die before Carlton Gary did. Uh, because I'm eight years older than he is. He was living in a secure, safe environment, whereas I'm driving uh, out here on, uh, on uh, 
Veterans Parkway or Victory Drive, I can be killed in an automobile accident. He's not going. He had a physical every year. He had a surgery while he was uh, confined, and uh, I was more subject to to death than he was. But uh, I I did survive him. Let me ask you this: You were the man who brought this killer to justice, and are you one hundred? present convinced Judge Smith that they executed the right guy. Well, let me say this, that uh, I was a prosecutor in the district attorney's office for a total of 18 years. Uh, I prosecuted hundreds of cases. I never charted them. I never kept up with how many, but a lot of cases. I've already referred to the fact that I prosecuted uh, uh, personally uh, six or eight uh, death penalty uh, cases. Uh, This is the strongest case, the greatest amount of evidence of any case that I ever prosecuted or was prosecuted by someone else in the district attorney's office during those 18 years. I was absolutely convinced then. I am absolutely convinced now. I'm going to ask a follow-up to that now, Judge. There are still people in this town that don't think you did it. Legitimate, smart people that think don't think you did it. What do you say to the people who don't think Carlton Gary was the stock? I want William to answer that also, but I, I, I would, I would, I would say there's none so blind as he who will not see. Uh, I'll turn it over to William. The only thing that I can say is read the book. Um, I try to, as as I said earlier, I've tried to present a factual and and documented account of this series of things, and it's hard to to read the facts without coming to the conclusion this man is guilty. A lot of the detractors of this verdict ask you to prove a negative. For example, they'll say, well, how do you know that whatever? You can't prove a negative, you know. How do you know that we all shall not die by a uh, meteor coming tomorrow and destroying the world? Well, you don't know that, but you don't think it's going to happen. Uh, the uh, there was an interview I saw recently about a podcast I, 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 about an interview I did. Someone had asked one of the defense attorneys, and the defense attorney said, "Well, he's legally guilty, but implying that the system was somehow unfair." Uh, I think that that's a red herring. I think that's a distraction from the fact that the evidence is overwhelming and the decision made by the jury and the subsequent appellate court's uh, system was quite accurate and correct. I've got a dear friend who describes what you just described in a little different way. He said, you never never play chess with a pigeon because the pigeon is going to sit there eventually. They're going to throw all the boards over use the bathroom on the board and fly off and say they won. It's probably a good analogy. Um, When you look at this story, Judge Smith, fairly or unfairly, it's going to be in the lead sentence of your obituary, and we hope that's a long time (laughs) off. But this sentence, Carlton Gary's name will appear in the first paragraph of your obituary. Are you comfortable with that? I'm not only comfortable with it, I'm, I'm proud of it. 
I hope it doesn't define me as a person or really as a district attorney or, or a judge, but, but it is there. And it's, it's something, uh, as I phrase it, the third time I've said it, I drew the short straw. I didn't seek this case out. I, just, I became district attorney in the midst of the crimes. Judge Wisnett uh, was promoted to a judgeship, appointed to a judgeship, and uh, took office on January 4th, 1978. I was sworn in on that same day, January 4th, 1978, as a district attorney. I had been there in the office. I was a chief assistant. Uh, I just moved next door to the, a different office. But um, it, it, was a, it was a trying time. And, uh, and as, back to what I said, I'm not only comfortable with it, I'm, I'm proud of it. You were, at the time you, were, you and Louise were raising children, you were a father, you were you know, kind of this guy in the community. And back then we didn't talk a lot about mental health or anything. How did you keep your mental health in the middle of this boiling cauldron that you were in? Well, it, it, it was, uh, I'm not sure about my mental health, but it, it was a, a challenge uh, to me. Uh, in addition to that, I mentioned my, my mother, a widow, uh, moved in with us uh, uh, in the fall, really bef before I became the district attorney. And she went back home after uh, two years. Uh, but uh, uh, when he was arrested and the trial was approaching, uh, she uh, was beginning to develop dementia, so she moved back in with us during this time. The trial is uh, coming up. Uh, we had two children at home. Um, my wife was working uh, at this time and uh, teaching. And uh, I just survived. We do what we have to do. It wasn't anything uh, heroic or, or what have you. I, I, I literally tried to do my job the best I could, keep the office going and, uh, and prepare to try this case. And I had, again, let me emphasize tremendous uh, assistance. I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that I did this alone. Uh, without Doug Pullen. Uh, Somebody's uh, got to be the drum major. Well, that's, uh, I, that's the seat I ended, I, I ended up in. That's right. Mr. Rollins, I'd like, as we wind this down, I want to ask you a question now. You're from Sandersville. You're a Georgian. We've established a very fine Southern lawyer. What do you know about Columbus, Georgia now that you didn't know when you started this project? It's a fine city. In fact, I've sort of fallen in love with Columbus. It's it's a great place. I, uh, as much as I dislike larger towns, I live I live in a small town. Actually, I live on the farm. Um, I am honored to have had such a fine introduction to Columbus. Uh, the past it doesn't necessarily uh, it's not necessarily indicative of the present or the future. And as an aside, my daughter is engaged to someone here in town, and she'll be moving to Columbus next July after the wedding. So How fortuitous. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I will ask you a question that, as a writer myself, I'm often interested mm -hmm. in. Do you write, when do you write your best, morning, midday, or, after, or evening? 
depends on what I'm writing, actually. I've, I've, I've written both fiction and nonfiction. And uh, I, when it comes to fiction, I probably do my best in the morning. Uh, a lot of people um, have a tendency to write a little bit one day and review it the next day. I've heard many, many writers say that. I do the same thing. I read it and write it one day, and the next day I say, gosh, this is terrible. I need to rewrite it. But when it comes to doing uh, nonfiction like this, it is like researching a PhD thesis. You really, really have to get your facts straight. You have to you have to um, keep meticulous files. You have to be organized. The processes are almost a little bit different. They're quite a bit different, in fact. So it depends on what I'm writing. If I'm doing nonfiction, to answer your question, uh, I write. I can write twelve hours a day. If I'm doing fiction, I write several hours in the morning. Interesting. Judge Smith, what was your reaction when you read the first cop, the first draft of this? I was pleased. Uh, I was grateful uh, that the truth had finally been told. There are four or five, depending on how you count them, previous uh, attempts to tell the story. Each one of them has an agenda. Uh, to read a book without an agenda that simply uh, follows the case and follows the facts was uh, the culmination uh, for me. And uh, I, I, that's all I've, e- I've ever wanted. I didn't want it to tell my story. It's such an important part of Columbus's history, especially in the second half of the 20th uh, century. And it needed to be told, and I was afraid that uh, one or more of those other books was going to be the only, the only source that people would have. Now they, they have the truth. And I was pleased then, and I'm pleased now. Mr. Rollins, how does that make you feel as an author to hear what Judge Smith just said? Simply that I've accomplished my goal to write a truthful book that is um, consistent with the facts and portrays not only the hard events, but uh, is done so without opinion or editorial input on the part of the author. As a journalist, I respect every syllable you just said. I think that is what all of us want, and I can't wait to dig into this. We're at a point now, we've shot over over the hour, I think. Uh, Judge, you and Dick McMichael are the only two who have gone into the second hour on uh, <laughs> a reporter, a anchor, news anchor here that covered all this. It's an honor to be mentioned uh, in the same sentence with Dick. Absolutely. Um, we're at a point in the podcast now where I call Turn the Tables. Um, you get to ask me a question. And, you know, Judge, you and I have a long relationship that goes back several decades. Uh, we share a love for Auburn football. Um, it's a tortured love right now, but it's a love. Uh, but I hold you an incredible, incredible I've always found you to be honorable, accessible, and truthful. Um, very curious what you're, what you're going to ask. I'm going to ask what you thought about this case over the years. You know, a name that hasn't come into this, um, and I'm going to bring it in now, and Mr. Rollins will probably jump into this, is Billy Wynn. I always thought Billy was going to be the one that wrote the definitive history of this case. Billy's a son of Columbus like son of that area, like him. And Billy is a former uh, editorial page editor 
uh, Ledger, an incredibly talented journalist, covered the civil rights movement, um, did a lot of stuff in the upper end. I always thought Billy was going to be the one. So when I saw somebody else come into it, I was surprised. I, I thought, okay, what does a guy from Sandersville know about this story? I always thought to tell this story, and I always thought wrongly, I will say this now, to tell this story, you had to have lived it, that there's no way you can channel the emotion of what happened if you weren't in one of those cars that got pulled over randomly on Winton Road, if you weren't somebody going to your mother's house. I mean, you lived it. You lived it, and then you prosecuted it. I always thought Billy would be the one that told the story, and I now I think the circumstances ended up going in another direction, and I'll love, I'd like to hear either one of y'all respond to that. Let, let me ask this. Um, Billy Wynn wanted to write the story, and, and you have to kind of, this is the South. Everybody's related to everybody else. Billy Wynn is my brother's stepfather-in-law at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, no matter where you live in the South, you're related to somebody. Um, How come I knew it was going to end up coming back to that? You shouldn't have asked that question. Uh, I, this, uh, this book was written with the uh, permission and support of Billy Wynn. Um, uh, obviously, he uh, intended to write the book. In fact, he told me that he moved back to uh, Columbus in 1978 for the specific purpose of writing the story. And he had accumulated... Uh, invaluable resources in terms of documentation and so forth and so on. I saw some of those. But this, the problem is the story never ended. The, the killings were in 77, 78. The case went cold. The, the, trial, the, the arrest was made in 84. The trial was in 86. And then there was 32 years. And so every time you turn around, there was something new happening. And, and the, there were dramatic events. Each of these periods of time, including that long 32 years, and um, in the end, it boiled down to who was going to write the story. Uh, with Billy's support and permission, he kindly shared his, his uh, uh, documents with me, and they contributed an um, extreme amount. How valuable was what Billy shared? It was very valuable because it was the perspective that he had collected documents from the 1970s when the um, killings took place. Police and newspaper documents. Pol uh, police and, and newspaper documents. But the, but the news, the police reports were, were, were wonderful in terms of, of telling the story accurately. This is what the police thought at the time. This is, the, this is what the crime scene looked like. This, these are people that we interviewed and so forth and so on. Some of that, some of that, I could have found on my own, and I did. I did do a lot of research in the same area, but but stuff that was there was probably would not have otherwise been available. And it was nice to get in a couple of boxes, right? Well, I wish it was simply a couple of boxes. It's more like ten boxes, you know. <laughs> and and I assure you that uh, there's there's quite a few bankers boxes now that are full of uh, information that I had to collect to. Uh, to write the story. So Billy, uh, this was written with Billy Wynn, and, and in the book, in the acknowledgments, I certainly give him credit for this. How old are you, Judge? I am. I will be 80 years old in two weeks. Uh, uh, we're having a book signing for uh, uh, William uh, at Dinglewood Pharmacy, as you mentioned, the epicenter of the uh, uh, of the case of the center 
uh, of the case. And uh, Terry Hurley there is kind enough to open on a Sunday afternoon and uh, uh, have William and uh, people can purchase a book. If they've already bought one, they can come there and, uh, and, and uh, have it signed. But that will be my 80th birthday and my 80th birthday celebration. So uh, uh, I, if anyone wishes to happen, wish me a happy birthday, I'll be standing there doing no more than having a birthday. Wow, amazing. Here's the book. Here's the cover. Um, and I will close this out with you, Ms. Rollins, as I hold up your work. Um, it's a hard book to find. I tried everywhere to find it. it, it tell it, you're as an author, you've heard the best words. The first printing's gone, right? The the, the book has has been am- amazingly successful. The the first printing sold through by the date that it was officially released, which was a, uh, earlier last, this month. Uh, it was September sixth. Uh, all all of the entire first first press run was committed and will sell. And so the uh, the publishers ordered the second press run. And we should have this. There's still some copies. I think we'll have a few copies on the uh, September twenty fifth at Dinglewood, but. Uh, the book has gotten great reviews, and it's, I've gotten superb feedback from it, and uh, I'm very excited about it. I'm, I'm honored to have had the opportunity of, of, of writing it, and, and again, i got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Judge Smith was, was extremely helpful and has opened many doors for me. Uh, Billy Wynn's basic research helped me a lot, and I could, I, I could give a long list of people, which I do in the book, thanking them for their uh, input and cooperation in writing this uh, very long document. Well, I am going to sit down and read every word of it, and I'm just, you know, this story, you're a journalist in Columbus, and you came along after this story, but you saw parts of it because it played out over a half century, as you you said, Judge. The story is just, it's Columbus in every, Well, our guests have been William Rawlings. He's the author of the Columbus Stocking Strangler. He's the one, a Sandersville, Georgia author who has told most Columbus of stories. And Judge Bill Smith, who was the man who prosecuted and lived the Stocking Strangler story for a half century of his life. Gentlemen, thank you all for being here. I really, this, has been, this has been interesting and special. Thank you so much thank for you having us. The Chuck Williams Show airs on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 on WRBL.com. It's also available on your favorite podcast format, iHeart, Spotify, and Apple. Social media, yeah, we're there too. You can get me on Twitter at Chuck Williams, Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999.